G'day and welcome to another instalment of the Fly Fishers podcast. Since 1967, we've been spreading the bug of fly fishing at our Melbourne fly shop. Join us as we celebrate the fun of fly fishing and chat with characters that enjoy it as much as we do. Whether you're just starting out or have some experience, we hope our ego-free commentary helps demystify fly fishing and inspires you to visit new places and try new techniques. Jim Allen has lived a life consumed by fly fishing. His stories are legendary, and after his first episode with us, we couldn't wait to get him back in for more. Before listening to this episode, have a listen to episode two. We chat more broadly about Jim's life in fly fishing, and it's the perfect prelude to this episode. Jim has been fishing Tasmania since 1960, and few people could claim to have had as many days on the water in Tassie as Jim has. While building a small empire in mainland Australian fishing, Jim saw potential in the fishing tourism being attracted to the central highlands of Tasmania. What eventuated was Jim owning the Central Highlands Lodge, the Great Lake Hotel and Bridges Brothers in Hobart. In this part one chat with Jim, we talk about his love affair with Tasmania and extract some hilarious stories. Jim's vivid memories reveal how the fishing used to be in Tasmania and as we got going, we realised this had to be a two-part interview. In part two, we'll be dusting off Jim's detailed fishing diaries to discuss some of the more memorable entries, so stay tuned after giving this one a listen. Jim, welcome back to the podcast, mate. We're grateful you could fit us into your busy retirement schedule. Thank you, Andrew. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, Tassie, it really has held a very special place for you for a really, really long time. Um, We we thought we'd start with just getting a bit of a timeline and and just hearing about that progression. When did it all start in Tasmania for you? First trip I did there was actually a walk through the Cradle Mountain National Park with the mates from school. And I took my grandfather's fly rod, which is an old green heart rod and uh, a very very uh, old fly reel and uh, I didn't fish at all the whole walk until we got to Lake St Clair and then I climbed a tree and uh, dapped a black ant fly a truck came along about a pound and a half ate it spat it out nobody had told me you had to strike (laughs) (laughs) but that was my first experience with a fly rod wow so we're we're, I guess we're talking about not just your your first experience in Tasmania but also your first experience fly fishing in its in that sort of form yeah sure I was 16 you you know like but I went back to Tasmania in 1974 seriously you know by then I'd learnt to fly fish I'd fished all through northeastern Victoria the snowy mountains and I wouldn't say I was a good fly fisher, but I was a passionate fly fisher and I knew what I was doing. By then I had, you know, proper outfits and, you know, and, and from that moment on I uh, fished every year in Tasmania, bought a shack in 1978 and I haven't had a year where probably two months has been spent in Tasmania since. And wow. uh, this year I'm going down on Boxing Day and I'll be there for three months again as usual. <laughs> And uh, just, uh, you know, to provide a bit of clarity for the listeners, uh, Complete Angler, that started in 1967. So we're now 10 years on from you starting the Complete Angler. And that was that, you know, about when you started to have enough time to get down there and, and spend a season or at least a month or two at a time? My early passion was the Snowy Mountains and fishing the Monero Rivers, particularly the McLaughlin, the Kybian and uh, the Kydra. <clears throat> and fishing the Yukon Lakes, you know, Tantangra. And so my fishing was 
a bit slow in getting to Tasmania. As I said, it wasn't until 1974, but once I discovered Tasmania, that all changed. And, you know, I suddenly realised what a fantastic place it was. And, and of course, I've seen the changes over the last 40 years, 50 years there, uh, which have been significant. It's not the fishery today that it once was. On the other hand, it's still one of the great wild trout fisheries in the world, I'd say. Uh, there's not many... Pla- the trouble is with mankind, we've become a plague on the planet <laughs> and uh, the fishing pressure is so much different from just 1980s to now. Uh, but even during that time, you would have seen some newly flooded waters and places that uh, the fishing almost exploded. Um, so you, some waters that got better and then subsided and I guess even today we're starting to see some waters that are... Are opening up, and uh, you know there's a lot of positives happening all the time. But you, in your mind, you're reflecting on a lot of the waters that have been lost. Is that true? Yes. Although when I first went to Tasmania, Arthur's Lake was recently filled, and um, the fish there. Well, firstly, to go into the cow paddock was the most horrendous four-wheel drive track. But the fish averaged seven or eight pounds when they first filled it. Yeah. And by the time I got there, they were four pounds. And then Arthur's Lake changes significantly by, A, the population of cormorants. And I remember a time when every trout in Arthur's Lake was a pound, pound a quarter. And then I remember a drought coming and 5,000 cormorants came to Arthur's Lake and two years later we were catching four-pounders. Mm. And that was a clean-up by the cormorants. But I missed out on the house in years at Lake Petter because I was ignorant in the quality of the dry fly fishing we're having in the highlands and I didn't really want to go and fish a mudder in the middle of the night to catch a 20-pound trout. But now, looking back, I really regret that I didn't go to Pedder in those halcyon years. It's hard for you to say that, I think, because I've fished with you and I know how much you love your sight fishing and for you that is, you know, the creme de la creme. Still is And, and, and I've loved it but... I had my head in the sand because Lake Petter was just one of those things that will never happen again possibly. It was just so amazing. And the fish averaged 10 to 20 pounds. It was a, a unique period in Tasmanian's history that I missed out on. Yeah. And I went with Billy Beck at the very end of it and caught a couple of seven or eight pounders. But I missed the real peak of the peak of the. Boom. You don't yeah. strike me as someone that lives with many many regrets, Jim, but that might be one. Yeah. <laughs> well, I look back and it is because I was stupid. I, I just didn't didn't cotton on what how significant that Lake Petter boom was. And it was only a period of four or five years and it was all over. And and looking back in history, the same thing happened at Eucumbeen. The same thing happened at Eildon when Eildon got first flooded and, and, and you've got to pick up those little wins when they happen and I've never had the real results of a new water because I've always loved my sight fishing as you well know and, and I, I look back, is it regret? I don't know. It wasn't regret at the time but I think it is now. Just an and, opportunity you know, lost. That's a diff- yeah. I'm looking through the eyes of a 70-year-old and at the time, I, I was, I, I think, even arrogant about it. I, you know, I just said, oh, no, I don't need to do that. And I've never been a flogging of the wet fly sort of bloke. And, and you know, I've had some remarkably good days. 
fishing a wet fly, but and and exciting days. But it's the best fishing I've ever had is sight fishing with a pair of Polaroid glasses on. Yeah. Yeah. So the Highlands was where it was at for you. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think now we're in what mid seventies, late seventies. Uh, you know, what other progressions can you tell us from that time? Well, uh, the advent of Polaroiding, uh, I've mentioned before on the notes that I've written for your magazine, was John Philbrick and opening up the vision of Polaroiding trout in the waves. In the early 1980s, no one went out into the Western Lakes in a big northerly on a clear blue sky day. That was just not on. And yet Philbrick woke me up at Penstock and he said, you've got to see these trout there. You see them in the window of the waves. And, of course, as each wave comes up, as you know, there's a window and you can see these trout. And, of course, I took that out into the Western Lakes and opened up a new horizon of fishing, you know, like... Oh, those early days at Lake Botsford were unbelievable. You can't catch fish like that today because the fish have woken up and, and all the fishing's not there as it was, but it was amazing. Today, 17 or 18 people will be on Botsford on a cobalt blue sky day, but when I was fishing in the 80s, we had the whole lake to ourselves and a whole lot of Tasmanians said we were sick as bricks. <laughs> Little did they know. Yeah, you were having a good time there. So you were yeah. loving it already just based off the dry fly fishing experiences you were having. But then you discovered polarizing and that polarizing that was a, a light bulb like wow. This yeah, well, it went through a few, it went through a few little phases because when we first went out there and when I wrote a little um, note for Australia's Best Trout Flies, which was published as a fundraiser for the World Fly Fishing Championships, I wrote about the red tag being my favourite fly and I was passionate about the red tag. And then that went through a phase and mm. suddenly the trout weren't eating the red tag because they saw too many of them, I think. Yeah. And, uh, and we Jim trans- Allen might have had something to do with that. Well, <laughs> told, a few, told a few friends, yeah. maybe one too many. Well, a- absolutely. And, and, and then, of course, we changed to fishing... John Philbrick's nymph, which was a half mayfly nymph, half stickatus nymph, in my view, because it was a very thin nymph, and uh, and and that lifted all our catches again to where it was with our red tag when we first fished it. But the fish woke up to the red tag, and and now they've woken up to the Philbrick's nymph too. Although it's still a deadly trout fly, yeah, it is. Um, and then, uh, so your, your your shack ownership in in Myena, when did that all happen? When did you buy your first shack in I Myena? bought a shack in November 1978 with Noel Jetson. Noel Jetson, we came up and fished Penstock. Then we went and met this old bloke who had the shack, paid $4,000 for the shack. <laughs> Two grand each. Yeah, yeah. Well, oh, no, I had it on my own. I bought it on my own. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, no, it wasn't done in a partnership. Yeah. Just paid the 4000 and And... Uh, and he had a boat in the garage, but I wouldn't pay the 500 bucks for the boat. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, well, I wasn't going to be a boat fisherman. That was nonsense. Who'd go fishing in a boat? Little did he know that, <laughs> that 15 years later I, I live in a boat yeah. fishing, fishing out in the middle of the Great Lake. But um, you know, that early days, the highlands of Tasmania were totally different. We all leased our blocks of land. There was no private ownership. Uh, there was 
you know, that was all leased land and we paid, I think I paid $25 ground rent and uh, and eventually we bought our own free, they did a subdivision and we bought our own free old properties and, and, uh, and I've had a shack in Tasmania to this day from then and uh, I, I sold the first shack and then bought one further up the valley because I wanted to see this, the fog come over the, the little dam where the, where the where the Great Lake Lodge is, or the Central Highlands Lodge is, and um, and I, I, I was so passionate about getting up early in the morning, something I don't do now, and uh, going fishing. And, of course, we'd leave my inner at 3.30 in the morning and drive down to Sorel on a foggy, on a foggy early morning, and, um, and then we'd fish Arthur's, and we'd fish the Great Lake daybreak, and the fog in the valley was more important to me. But I regret that because the view on the Great Lake I lost and I moved up the valley and didn't have the view of the lake, but I had a view of yeah. the fog. You're sleeping it, in now and it makes no difference. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> well, uh, getting me on a dawn patrol now is very, very difficult. <laughs> and, 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 and the fishing's changed a bit because the guys who do get up early in the morning do catch... A, a nice head of fish at daybreak on the Great Lake in the midges, and and uh, and so it, it's important you do it. And if I was thirty like you, Andrew, I'd be up at dawn. Thirty. Before. I just lost eight years. <laughs> <laughs> Love that. Thanks, Jim. <laughs> well, you're only a baby to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then uh, uh, you know, let's talk a bit about that time frame where the the lodge and the pub were being built, and and what was your involvement in in those two establishments over there? Reflecting back. My investment in the accommodation in Tasmania was an unmitigated disaster. Now, that's looking back. We didn't lose any money. We didn't make any money. Um, I learned very quickly that running a pub isn't a wonderful thing to do. You're actually a drunk's labourer. <laughs> and, uh, and, and looking back, it was the loneliest year of my life because I left a vibrant business in Melbourne in charge with Brian Burke and thought that I was going to run a hotel for fishermen, and that wasn't the case. I ran a hotel for Tasmanians of all walks of life, you know, kangaroo shooters, fishermen, deer shooters, you know, like, and and just visitors to the mountain when it snowed. And it, it was only one year, and I look back and reflect on it and made a lot of friends, there's lots of pluses, and a whole lot of minuses as well, you know. And that, well, you know the story. We got shot up one Saturday <laughs> night there. Where it's a quiet night, and and in walk these hoodlums, and they bang people over the head with chairs. And then we get out into the car park, and they pull a firearm out, and uh, shoot up the pub. And you don't own your pub; the locals own your pub. And of course, the locals in the pub took on these blokes and I walked out there and Graham Monks, one of the locals, had his foot on one bloke's head and putting his left foot into the guy's face. I said, I think he's had enough, Graham. He said, yeah, yeah, mate, I'll go and get another one. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> the whole thing ended up an unmitigated disaster. I rang the police and, of course, I think a publican's got to look after his own fisticuffs but when firearms get used, it all changes. And anyway... The upshot of it was the local bloke turned up on Monday. He didn't turn up on Saturday night <laughs> and I blew the crap out of him and said, I've written to the Chief Commissioner and he read that and he said, oh, you can't send that, Jim. I said, I'll have to. Yeah, I'm not, unha I'm not happy. Anyway, he turned up the next morning with 
the policeman from Deloraine, the policeman from Ooze, the deep policeman from Nor- New Norfolk, they all turned up and they said, Jim, please don't send that letter. Please don't send the letter. We will seal off the Highlands. We'll never let you down again. <laughs> I, di- I did get a dividend a year later when I drove out from a very heavy night at Ezra Chew, which is wet ass spelt backwards, a shack in Todd's Corner. <laughs> and we'd had a huge dinner. We'd had a huge dinner and out onto the Great Lake Highway and blue lights go up everywhere. And, and I get out of the car and say, what are you blokes doing at this hour of the morning? It's 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning. And he said, more importantly, what are you doing? I said, I've been fishing. Now I opened up and he said, well, we're looking for some people who shield, she, steal sheep. And I said to him, well, look, the Suzuki doesn't hold many and I opened up the back door of the Suzuki and I had three trout laid out and they were all lovely trout at the time. And, um, and he said, oh, you have been fishing. And then he said, but you've been drinking too, haven't you? We'll have to breathalyse you. And out of the gloom, this voice goes, is that you, Jim Allen? I said, yeah. He said, Terry Arwood Bothwell. I said, I said oh, g'day, Terry. And he comes up to this bloke and says, George, we won't be breathalysing him. <laughs> And George says, you know the regulations, we have to. We won't be breathalysing him. We owe this guy a huge favour. He's a hell of a nice bloke. We won't. And then he came up to me and said, now, Jim, get home. Don't fall off the, don't fall off the highway. And I said, Terry, every adrenaline button is going off. I'm OK. And he said, well, just make sure. Anyway, so that was the dividend. But, you know, the, I look back... <laughs> You do things in your life and look back with pride. And I look back at the hotel today that's travelling very well under very good management, but I could tell you some horror stories if we sat for another hour, but I won't. Yeah, we'll go back to talking about fishing. Yeah, <laughs> but, let, you know, just to, to uh, just create that timeline, because uh, you, you had some involvement in building the pub, was it, or the lodge? Um, well, both in the end in ownership, but we... Julian Brown built the hotel and I was his 10% equity partner in it. As we opened it, Julian wanted out. He saw it way ahead of me, so I bought his 90% and owned 100% of it. And then a year later, leased it to Anne and Rex Moody, who ran it for 20 years, I guess, and did a fantastic job. It, it fell apart at the end, but that's another story, but... And Rex, Rex Moody is still a very, very good friend of mine today. He's a wonderful man. And uh, so consequently... Uh, and then when it all fell apart, the hotel down the other end of town, because we, we, we had a lodge, and so we converted the other hotel into a lodge and Mark Penny ran that, and who worked for me in Melbourne. And uh, oh, it's a long story, but... I ended up having a half interest in both pubs right. and uh, one we ran as a lodge for fishermen and the other as a pub. And, and they're still there, they still work. Yeah. And, you know, and I'm proud of it today. You should be. I mean, yeah. I think, you know, you can't go through my inner with chat without seeing some of, I guess, your legacy in what you uh, injected into my inner, if you like. Yeah, well, and, and, and it needed it at yeah. the time. Well, it. They're both successful organisations today and a lot of mainlanders come and stay in them for fishing, but a whole lot of other people do too. There's always a, a group, I don't know what it is about Tasmania, but they have a whole group of bikies and they're innocent, nice bikies. They're not, they're not road rage criminal bikies that we tend to think of as bikies, but they're just nice blokes, although one night they did 
did drink me out of Jack Daniels, but that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I can't imagine the Jack Daniels being wasted over there in Myena. No, well, of course, there's got a rum over in Tasmania that they had in those days called Royal Swan. Never seen it on the mainland in my life, but those Tasmanians loved it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Acquired taste by the sound. Yeah, I think so. Um, so let's get back to the fishing a bit. Um, the 19 lagoons in the Western Lakes, how, when did that fishery open up? Was that pretty early on in the piece? Oh, before my time. There was a four-wheel drive track out to Lake K way before I ever fished there. The, the roads dramatically improved out there to what it was. But um, if you if you go out to Julian today, it's still a horrendous four-wheel drive track to get out to Julian or Billens, and so there's still some of those remote lakes that are hard to get to, but now you can take it. Well, you could probably take a Jaguar out to the 19 Lagoons because yeah. the road's all sealed, not sealed, but it's it's in good condition, although it gets potholed occasionally. Peter, you could take your Mazda MX-5 out there, mate. Oh, it's the ideal fishing vehicle for it, isn't it? <laughs> Two-wheel drive, more than adequate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know, you but were those lakes being stocked back then, back in the seventies? No, no. Oh. That when when I first fished there, the the land was still leased and grazed and fenced with sheep on it, uh, which stopped pretty soon afterwards. But in the early days, I had I drove a four wheel drive out to Flora and Odell. Uh, I drove out to Christie's Creek. Um, all those tracks are closed now, and so they should be, uh, but. In my early days, my Suzuki went everywhere and there was no rules about going off-road. You just went wherever the Suzuki would take you. And, you know, I, I can remember driving, um, you know, out to Christie's Creek and just heading off into the bush and, and going to lakes where, you know, it was amazing looking back. And, um, you know, look, I remember driving to Sandy, you know, going wow. out, go, yeah. going out, you know, like along the shore of Augusta, and uh, that, we just went everywhere in a four-wheel drive. It was amazing, mm. and of course, that's all stopped, and so it should. Have. And uh, and the the nineteen lagoons are very specific with, you know, signposts and gazetted tracks. And have you noticed a difference in the vegetation today as to how it was when it was grazing country? Or was it pretty much the same? Looks the same. Yeah, I couldn't tell the difference. Mm. I, I don't think the grazing did a lot of damage, um, but it wasn't heavily grazed either. It was so many wallabies and everything else well, out they there took, too. And they took the sheep out in the summer. It was summer grazing, and they brought them back in the winter. So I don't think no, I don't. But yeah, I don't think there was a lot of damage done. Um, and then of course they all went green a bit and you weren't allowed to take horses out there because horses might take the wrong seeds out and you know, that, and that seems to have eased off a bit too now. But um, the grazing had to stop. But as you walk through the Western Lakes today, you'll see fence lines way out, mm. way out, all the way to sort of, you know, really way out, mm. you know, walls of Jerusalem you'll yeah. find fences, you know. And, and there were early huts out there too. You know, to be a shepherd back in those days must have been harsh. You know, like oh, can you can you imagine living out there? I can't I actually no, can't imagine? You it. know, and as you drive out to Fergus, there's one or two old homesteads on the way out there. They lived out there for the whole year. Went into the Bothwell Show to pick up flour, sugar, and you know, not much. And they grew their own vegetables, killed their own animals, and 
Oh, yeah, and Jim Allen's complaining about having lived in Myena for a year. No scars. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's right. Slightly more remote. Well, the power, the power came to Myena uh, before my time, but you know it hadn't been there a long time, and the roads were unsealed. Um, the Poatina Road was sealed, but the road to Deloraine was unsealed when I first went there, and all around the Highlands was unsealed. But it's the Great Lake Highway is totally sealed today. And that's quite recent. It's only the last five years that they finished it off. But, um, you know, the time I remember in Tasmania is corrugated roads and mm. a Suzuki that slid sideways around quite a few corners too. But going down to Bronte today is still a gravel road, but that will change. There'll be, that'll be sealed in your time, not mine, but, you know. But that, um, you know, cool. talking about people actually travelling to uh, Myena specifically to fish, was that... Uh, something that was happening before you, you had any commercial involvement over there or did you foresee that this might be a place where fishermen would want to come in, in more and more? And a, bit, a bit of both. Um, there was a shack. It was a shanty town mine in, when I first went there and there was like a tenth of the shacks then as there is today and the shacks were much more rudimentary. You know, the, there was... They like were, mine. Yeah, well, I remember. <laughs> I remember one of our, my first trips here. We stayed in an old railway carriage. That's um, what mine is. Oh, yes, but no, yours is a bit. It's had a few upgrades. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. No, I'm talking seriously rudimentary shacks, mm. and uh, but that's all changed. With the power. My first shack, you know, we had a dunny outside that was just a long drop. You know, and and to have a shower, we had to heat up a four-gallon drum of water and hoist it up on a thing and turn on a rose and sit under it for a few seconds and mm. and have a shower. But and a horse I reckon, wash, I reckon everyone who stayed in my shack got tinnier, you know, mm. like because you're just sitting on old boards and the water going out. And yeah, you know, nowadays we proper bathroom showers, everything's so yeah you know, upgraded to what it was when I first went there. But there was always a group of fishermen who lived at Myena mm. and and it wasn't polaroiding and there wasn't boat fishing as it is today. People just went out fishing. But more to Sorel and Arthur's and the Great Lake than it was to the Western Lakes because the Western Lakes were a bit of a struggle to get out there. You know, you need a four-wheel drive tr- to, to go past the Lake Augusta wall. There was always a pretty good track to Lake Augusta. Mm. but um, And then they, the Antarctic Division built the Bonacci Centre, which is now a lodge out there. And Thousand Lakes Lodge? Yeah, I think that's what it's called. And, um, and Always looking for sponsorships, Thousand, Thousand Lakes Lodge, if you're interested, hit us up. <laughs> <laughs> Baton <and> Peroni. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, it's... It, look, it's changed dramatically, but it's still a wonderful place to go trafficking. Yeah, you know. And in the early days, Little Pine Lagoon was and Penstock were always mainstay waters, although today they're grossly crowded by comparison to the fishermen that fished in those days. It has yeah. to be said, though, that you've done a lot in far as, the, as far as the promotion of fishing in the highlands of Tasmania. Tasmanians would definitely accuse me of that. <laughs> oh, you don't want to be accused of that. <laughs> I don't mind, you know, it's true. Um, but 
uh, it was going to happen, whether it was Jim Allen, you know, it would happen anyway because fly fishing went through that unbelievable boom in the in the eighties, and uh, and it's never looked back. And, and what was that boom? Was that a global thing? I think so. Yes, I, I think sport fishing generally was a global boom that started in the seventies, uh, perhaps even late sixties, and um, and people recognised sport fishing uh, rather rather than just fishing for food, which whilst fishing for food was always recreational fishing, I think the significance of understanding more about how limited our resources are uh, has come about only in the, in the last 50 years. I think prior to 1960, you would look at fishing as a food supply result rather than a sport fishing recreational result. Although having said that, Isaac Walton wrote the book a contemplative man's recreation in 1650. So I'm not quite right, but but I think the general fisherman in 1950 and 40... You see, the car, the car changed everything. Mm. Like when General Motors uh, built the Holden car in, and the first ones flew off in 1948, I think, but by the late 1960s, my generation was the first generation of teenage boys that had a motor car. You know, I had a car at 18, 19, where it's unbelievable today to an 18-year-old, 19-year-old not to have a car, but in those days a car was exceptional, mm. you know, and, and, and so we were the first generation to have the access to go to places and fish. And uh, all my early fishing was in northeastern Victoria and the Snowy Mountains. Tasmania wasn't on the agenda, but I had a motor car, you know, my FJ Holden went up the Hume Highway. Now, can you believe the Hume Highway was one lane either way, the whole way from Melbourne to Albury? Mm. One lane either way. Yeah, amazing. You know, and I remember the traffic jams coming back on a long weekend and it would start at Kilmore and it took three hours to get to Melbourne, you know, like... I think the thing you're really highlighting here is that the fishing pressure was almost non-existent. Correct. Um, and with that, I'm... I'm going to presume that the size of the fish was bigger than what you might experience today. How much of a – like catch and release today, how important is that just so that fish can actually get to the potential size that they have? I, I don't think the fish were much smaller today than then. Um, when I look at the photographs of the 1920s of the guys that went on horseback – into the Hakwajamison and Delatite River, they did find bigger fish in those rivers in those days. But by the time we were fishing it, the fish were probably about the same as they are now in size. However, there's some dramatic differences in lake fishing, you know, where lakes have started out, they get this burst of big fish, which I mentioned before. Um, but generally, I think food supply and the explosions of food supply are much more significant to the size of trout than, than fishing pressure. Yeah, and today your generation puts back fish, you know, like... We do, but it's not... There's still uh, a portion and a pretty significant when it comes to the conventional side of angling that do keep fish, which is nothing wrong with that, especially in our put-and-take waters, but general observation of some of our western victorian lakes today the fish don't really get the chance to get to the size that you know they could be yeah you might be right i, I you know look I, I, when i think of fishing the western district of victoria as a 
20-year-old, I don't reckon the trout are much different today. They were, like I remember Lake Ettrick having some seriously large rainbow trout, mm. you know, four or five pounders. Then they rolled down to pound and a half, two pound fish. And It's a natural cycle of lakes, well, Tasmania of it, or Part mainland. of it will be fishing yeah. pressure. There's no doubt about that. Part of it will be fishing pressure. But I think more significantly is that the cycles of food supply. Mm. You know, the explosions of water snail in Tasmania are seriously significant as to the size of fish. I, like Double Lagoon in Tasmania, which is one of the 19 lagoons, I remember all the fish in there totally slabby. They should have been three pound, they weighed a pound and a half. Four or five years later, an explosion of water snail or isopods uh, or stick caddis, and the fish are all three pound, four pound. Um, so I, I, I actually think the size of the fish is more significant, although having said that, the fishing pressure has 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 some effect for sure, mm. and particularly those waters where there were some really big fish like First Lagoon, East Rocky Lagoon that we used to nickname Shark Lagoon, which we'll talk about later. Now, those fish no longer have 10 and 12-pound fish in them, and that is fishing pressure, you know, and... Uh, you know, it's pretty hard to find a 12-pound trout in Tasmania today easily. But it, when I, I first... I think the way I'm thinking, though, is if you caught a fish out of East Rocky and you let it go, um, the fish is still there. So he'll get caught again and keep growing and get caught again and again, perhaps. Like, definitely in New Zealand, those fisheries that are almost solely catch and release by guided fly fishers... Uh, the the fish get to a phenomenal size. You'd have to presume because they've been caught more than once. So that I think the the catch and release story, as far as trophy fisheries is concerned, I think that's the only way to deal with angling pressure in those particular waters. Yes, yeah, so fair I, assumption or not? No, I think you're right. Um, I I also note that when I see photographs of fish from New Zealand rivers today. They look as if they've been caught four times. They've got that slightly um, oversized tail fins, oversized pectoral fins, ventral fins, and they've gone backwards in condition, although they're still superb fish. But sometimes I think by putting fish back, fish become educated and scared. They don't feel comfortable feeding as well as they did. So th- th- there's another side of it a bit. Of sustainable harvest, there's yeah, another side. Yeah, yeah, I hadn't thought of it yeah, like, in that way. Yeah, no, that's know. a good point. Yeah, I don't know whether it is a good point. It's well, just a, you know, I yeah. think you're pointing out that an older fish isn't necessarily a productive fish. Oh, absolutely. In Look, a breeding sense, as much as Couldn't a agree with you sense. more. There's a time for that fish to be thrown on the bank or taken home and eaten uh, because it's past its adult stage it's become an old fish mm. and there's no point in putting an eight pound trout back in the water that looks old and tired and and yet our regulations say we have to in some waters so yeah i i think it's much more important to put a two and a half pound trap back than what it is to put a seven pound trap back you know i think yeah, people feel good about putting a trophy fish back in the new zealand river or even in tasmania where the best fisheries management program is to put the two two pounder back because it's got four years more of good spawning years and is going to have a very much more reproductive value to the fishery than an adult fish it's time for a short break to talk about the legends who bring this podcast to life 
Our committed team at the Fly Fisher prepare, record and edit in-house in South Melbourne. We put huge effort in for you listeners. We hope that means when it comes time to make a fly fishing purchase, you consider us. With your loyalty, we can keep producing these podcasts and bringing you the world's best fly fishing gear. So shop smart and support the fly shop that supports you. Let's go back to your your fishing and over that timeline. Yeah, the, we've gone on to fisheries management. That's we okay. <laughs> we're inevitably going to get there. Yeah. Uh, but the uh, walking those western lakes was obviously a big thing for you. For uh, this is what age would would you have been? Well, once we were stopped from going out to Flora and Odell for argument's sake in a Suzuki. I walked out there incessantly and I've had both knees replaced because of walking out over those button grass plains as I've always been a bit overweight all my life So, and, and I did damage to myself and I know hips are going to have to be looked at at some stage if I last another decade, which might be not on the agenda, we'll see. But the bottom line of it is... Um, I walked all over those western lakes and and it was some fantastic fishing time too. And, of course, one of the things that was a bit of a hurdle, because you have to walk six miles back to a car, you can't carry the fish back. Where I killed a lot of fish and sent them off to the smokehouse in those early days. Um, but later on, walking back from Flora and Odell with... 10-pounder trout in your shoulder, um, it wasn't good. So, a bit taxing. Yeah, well, no, well, it was a good thing for me because it, it stopped us killing fish and, and that was at the cusp of when we shouldn't kill fish. You know, I, I, th- there was a time when we did started to think about the idea of... Absolutely, never those. thought about, you know, like the bag limit all over the western lakes of Tasmania was 12 fish. Mm. Like today, Botsford has a bag limit of one, I think. I'm not sure I'm up to date. Somebody might correct me. But, you know, like in it, I remember Peter Hayes pulling up and really giving me a hard time about having 12 dead fish under my Suzuki sitting in the breeze, which were all going back to Melbourne because I was flying home the next day and I'd, and I'd killed my bag limit on Botsford, which A, is impossible to do today, but B, in those days it was easy and Peter gave me a real rev up, and I, I thought about it later, and I thought, I arrogantly said, to Peter, oh, you're a track guy, you just want to bring your blokes, and I gave him a hard time. But in actual fact, he hit a button, and I, I drove and thought about it, and thought, Pete's right, we should, do we need to take this quantity of fish? And I remember saying to the Inland Fisheries Commissioner, Rob Sloan at the time, we really need to address some of these waters and their bag limits. And I think his retort was, oh, no, keep it simple, just make it 12 everywhere. Yeah, And then a year or two later, Rob Sloan, I think was Rob, and I might be wrong, but suddenly the bag limits all changed. And today bag limits are different everywhere, you know, and they've even got what you'd call a slot limit for some of the waters in, say, Penstock, mm. where you've got a, you're allowed to take a fish over 450 or, I, I, look, I don't know the regulations, but I know 
there's some regulations on size and there's regulations on... And so there should be. Different correct. waters well, 100% get different angling correct. pressure. And, and there's a lot more thought going into the management of our trout fisheries than it was in those days. Absolutely. And that's all good plus, plus, plus stuff. Yeah. And, so, and you, you know, the, the walking around the Western Lakes, uh, was it your knees that gave out in the end and that stopped you from getting out there or was it more a... a no, never. No. A, another the, discovery. The, the knees were later. By then I had a boat and, you know, the knees hurt a bit. But I didn't worry about that. It wasn't until I was 60, 65 or something before I had a knee replacement, you know. And by, by then I was no longer walking out in the Western Lakes. You know, you, you'll find that that'll happen to you somewhere in your late 40s and 50s and you just don't do the long walks because, A, you're a bit more cunning about it and you know that, you know, that you haven't got the time and, and so consequently... Times change. You get older and you don't fish as hard. Like when I look at my fishing diaries today, those diaries recorded eight, nine hundred fish in a year. Today they record a hundred, you know. Mm. And but I don't fish till midday. Go sit and have a cup of coffee and talk crap with mates. Yeah. But once upon a time I was up at seven in the morning. We're gone by eight, you know. Mm. Like, and and some mornings we got up at three in the morning and we're gone. And when we came back from Sorrel. We went straight out the Western Lakes and fished, and fished till dark. Yeah. yeah nowadays it's a gin and tonic at five o'clock. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe a cheese plate, a bit of cold smoked trout on a cracker. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, yeah. But there must have been something in that boat fishing that was a bit of a, a, a discovery for you. I just want you to open up a bit more about the you know, uh, shark fishing on the Great Lake and that you, you touched on it before, Polaroiding, you know, John Philbrick. Um, the boat fishing in general, though, when did you buy your first boat over there? That's a good question. Probably 1980, 89, 90. Was it the wind um, lanes or what was it? St- yeah, it was, it was firstly Rob Sloan wrote a very, very good chapter in his first book about wind lanes on, on Dee Lagoon. And we'd seen, Dee, seen those wind lanes on the Great Lake and I remember saying, we've just got to get out there at dawn. Those oil slicks will definitely have fish on them. And, of course, when we found them, they did. And uh, But that was a lo- long time after we'd found polaroiding shark fishing on the Great Lake. Um, oh, it wasn't that many years later, thinking back, because Peter Wilson, at the, who ran the Great Lake Hotel, uh, built it, uh, he said to me, oh, Jim, you've got to get out onto the Great Lake Wall at, at, at 6 o'clock. They glow like they're gold bars. And I went out there and they were there and the gold bars and caught a few. And, and I thought, well, if they're there at 6 o'clock at night, perhaps they're there. And, of course, the next day or two, get there out in the boat and 10 in the morning and there they were all up. And, and they weren't gold bars, they were just brown bars, you know, and, and, and we nicknamed brown sharks and we, we nicknamed the term shark fishing. And that was th- that early days of that discovery of those fish out on the Great Lake, uh, you know, some of the guys were taking 35, 40 trout. I think Tim Wallace records a day where he caught 42 trout in the day. My diary records a day with Nick Cush where we caught 38. Mm. Now, well, you go out on the Great Lake today, shark fishing, if you get double figures, you've had a miracle day, you know. But when it, when it was... But I think the trout have discovered that 
they've got opposition. They, 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 things can go wrong, and when they eat a fly, and you, you break one off, they they don't come up as easily. They're not on the surface as they once were, but it's still a very very good trout fishery on a blue blue sky day, um, and. The daybreak fishing is still very, very good. If you get out of bed four o'clock in the morning, get out on the Great Lake at first light. Those fish sip in the wind lanes. They fish in that. They sip in that oil slick like you wouldn't believe. Mm. Still today, perhaps not as it. You've got more fishing pressure today. You got to get away from a few boats, but it, it's still there and it's still wonderful fishing. And I think by a global comparison, what we have in Tasmania is still some of the best trout fishing in the world. You can't argue with that really, can you? No, I agree, 100%. And yet there are parts of the world where lake fishing's not looked at through the right eyes. And there are little parts of the world where, like New Zealand for argument's sake, those fishermen in New Zealand are all river fishermen, they don't fish lakes. Mm. And yet I'm sure if I took a de Havilland boat across to New Zealand and uh, fish those lakes, you'd, you'd discover a brand new trout fishery for those New Zealanders. In fact, I wrote recently in your fly stream about how the fishing changed on the Tongariro River by one Australian fishing an upstream nymph when everybody fished across and downstream. And it caused consternation because... You know, there was a war. The, the people fishing downstream didn't want people fishing upstream and there was a whole lot... Of, it, it sorted itself out and I, I think I wrote an article on manners maketh man or something in one of your Flystream blogs or Flystream magazine articles and, and, and how fishermen are innately good people. They, they, and, and so that sorted itself out. In the lake fishing in New Zealand, they still don't do it. And, mm. and most parts of America, it's it's the river fishing. You know, it's a, have you fished this river, the Copper River, or the, you know, they don't fish lakes. Mm. And yet, and yet, I've got a mate of mine from Tasmania who goes over and fishes a lake called Hebden Lake, and he says, Jim, it's just as good as any trout fishing in Tasmania, yeah, but the yeah. Americans are not doing it. Yeah. And, he, and he said, it's a mayfly fishery. And he said, the fish are hard, but he said, they're there. And mm. he said, it's as good as any fishing you'll have in Tasmania. Mm. He goes over to America into a, oh, I think it's pretty crowded, populated area and has wonderful fishing. Yeah. That, that probably plays into us being pretty competitive on the global stage Uh these days in fly fishing. I guess our lake fishing maybe isn't that easy and that's why our anglers seem to perform at a, a pretty good global... Yeah, I tend to agree with you, yeah. yeah. I, you know, I think I think Tasmanian trout fishermen, once upon a time I remember blokes saying, oh, mainland fishermen are much better than Tasmanian fishermen. Not true today. Mm. Tasmania's come a long way. Yeah. Uh, but in 1975... I think it was a fair comment that mainland fishermen who have fished the Goulburn River were better fishermen in general terms, as a generalisation, than Tasmanian fishermen. But that's not so. Those Tasmanian fishermen are a step above us, I reckon. Yeah. When I say us, I'm talking as mainlanders. Yeah, and, I agree. And, well, and there's there. a natural rivalry between Tasmania and the mainland. You know, like that. I'm still a mainlander, will be forever. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah. 
Yeah, so, that's good. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess it's a bit like the Australian-New Zealand thing, isn't it? You know, the down and across and the upstream. Uh, yeah, it's across the ditch. You know, there's yeah. always rivalry. There's always uh, yeah. going to be rivalry. Yeah, there always will be. Um, yeah. In, I guess, one of my early trips to, to Tasmania and uh, being witness to what goes on in Myena at Jim Allen Shack, uh, you know, the cavalry comes in in the morning at like 8.30 and in for a coffee and they seem to hang around till midday and – uh, it's not just two or three people. More often than not, it's sort of a dozen to thirty people. Um, that shack is just a, a a very social area. It has a revolving door. It has a revolving door, as you have put it before, Jim. Yeah, I suppose so. You know, like yeah, look, you're right. I, I probably don't want to admit that, but you know, it's always been a sort of a, a bit of a meeting place of. And that's a mix of mainlanders coming over and wanting to call in and see what's going on and it's a mix of my closer Tasmanian mates that have got shacks around and we do tend to meet at the shack and have a cup of coffee in the morning. But when you look at the... We're all old buggers, you know, we're... we're you know, if you look at the demographic, it's not your age that's there. That You go fishing. We just sit and have a cup of coffee and go fishing at 11 o'clock in the morning or even a bit later. Um... But in the early days, when the Polaroiding was first being discovered in the Western Lakes, there was a meeting in the shack at 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock in the morning, but it was a very short meeting where we divvied up the 19 lagoons. You go to this lake, I'll go to this lake, and um, we divvied it up so that we didn't have all four or five or six of us on Botsford. We had one on K, one on Botsford, one on Double Lagoon, one on, you know, in those days, East Rocky was a total secret between just two or three of us. Never mentioned East Rocky. We called it Shark Lagoon. And there was a hunt on about the locals finding where's Jim Allen's Shark Lagoon, you know. Oh, really? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah they'd well, heard about it, but well, yeah, you didn't well, tell them. Well, you know... You had to give it its own name. Well, (laughs) if you go and look at those diaries, there's a day there that I caught four fish weighing 39 pound 15 We're going to talk about that in a bit. Yeah, well, Um, it it was, uh, you know, those those fish were gigantic. In fact, I'm sure that lagoon hadn't been fished for five or six, seven, eight years if it had been fished. Yeah, wow. You know, it was just there was no one knew about it. And And Dave Fennick and I discovered it. We'd left a car at Double Lagoon and decided to leave a car at K and do the whole walk fishing Double Lagoon, Chipman, and didn't know about East Rocky. We are going to fish Lake K. And we walked past this and Dave says, I wonder if there's any fish in there. And I said, well, you walk down that one, I'll walk this one. We both saw a seven-pounder and we looked at each other don't you breathe a bloody word about it. <laughs> <laughs> Keep this to ourselves. Yeah. 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 And then we went back. Yeah. 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 But getting back to, you know, just the social side of, of what you've you've created there in Myena, um, what, what, why? Like, you know, I think it would have been easy to be quite selfish with your fishing and not, not really share too much of it out, but it, it is a revolving door and you've got all walks of life coming in and out all the time. Uh you know, early in the morning or after the day's fishing to talk about what's happened, what they've caught, where they've been. Um, it, to me, I sort of saw that on the sidelines as a 19-year-old, a, a your age, Peter. Mm. Um, and I just thought, oh, shit, this is like um, 
what I'd seen in magazines of places in Montana, like Craig in Montana, for instance, it, it, like this, there's actually a, a fly fishing fabric here, you know, like there's a community that are all here for the same reason, which is catching trout. And I think as much as the fishing itself, that was what I fell in love with in my Yeah, look, I think back, and I'm thinking immediately of Billy Beckshack playing cards and the 15 of us going down to Billy Beck's and eating a steak and and, uh, and mixing it up there. There was a social fabric of mine, which it wasn't just my shack, it was other shacks as well. You're right in the morning, but my shack seemed to have a magnetic attraction, um, but that was more to find out what everyone was doing for the day, I think. Uh, but... You know, look, I remember playing cards at Billy Beck's shack till three o'clock in the morning, you know. Like, it, it, there is... And I think part of fishing is a bit like that. We, we, we are social animals and, and we like being with each other and talking the same shit, if I can use this expression. Mm. Um, you know, like, uh, there's... It, it, to me, uh, fl- Fly fishing isn't just a lone sport, although we all like a day on a lake on our own. On the other side, we like to share the experiences and talk about it. We, we, we And we all have egos too, you know. Like a, You can't get away from the fact we love telling stories, you know, and that, that's just human behaviour, I think. Yeah, you know, we are social animals, you know. Like, and you've got a special name for the numbers of fish over there too. Can you fill us in on, on that, what that term is and, and how it came about? I'm not sure I know what you're talking about. The Mokopan score. Oh, yeah, no, no. <laughs> Years ago, <laughs> cricket in Australia was subsidised or sponsored by the coffee manufacturer Mokopan and, and the scoreboard at the Melbourne Cricket Ground was always the Mokopan scoreboard. And, of course, we picked up the name and and uh, and, and colloquially call our trout fishing captures the Mokopan you know, what was the mockapan, which means how many fish do you get? And so, but that's just, that's where that came from. But it came from, you know, a, a sports sponsorship and we just picked it up and, yeah, and, right. and, and you know, just colloquially caught, and it still do. It's yeah. a, I think it took yeah. me a couple of years to actually cotton on as to what it was. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, the mockapan. What, well, what's this mockapan they keep talking <laughs> yeah, about? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah like, you know, what was mockapan? Mm. As if, which is, just straight, how many fish you catch? You mm. know, nothing more, nothing less. Yeah, you know, what was the mockapan? You know, but but we were in the nineteen eighties catching cricket scores. You know, we were catching ten, fifteen, twenty, sometimes thirty fish a day. That's not there today. That fishing is gone. The, the fishing pressure um, and the fish themselves have become a lot smarter. I'm sure of that. The fish, the fish that I fish for with a pair of polar or glasses today, it's it's not as simple. It, you know, once upon a time, I remember Barry Lodge's emerger for argument's sake was a, a brand new trout fly. No one had ever used it. All you had to do is put it in front of a trout, and the trout just go sip. Mm. And uh, you know, nowadays. If you start in a good mayfly hatch, you seem to catch a few fish at the beginning of the hatch. Then in the height of the hatch, the fish are extremely knowledgeable and they're very difficult to catch. And then at the end of the hatch, what Billy Beck used to call the mopping up period, you caught a few trout too. And 
I just think the trout are so much wiser today than what they were because they see so many more fishermen today. Like, it's not unusual to see 20 boats on Penstock or or, or Little Pine Lagoon. Small well, waters with a lot of boats. And it has to have an effect. It just Absolutely. has to. The question mark yeah. has to be there, doesn't it? Yeah. Mm. And yet... Having said all of that, I hope we never get to the stage where we have to go on ballots to fish waters. I hope we don't have to book in our day at Penstock or book in our day at Little Pine Lagoon with the pressure of fishing. And that's happened in parts of the world, and I just hope it doesn't come to Australia in my lifetime, but I reckon it might in yours. (laughs) (laughs) It might too. Yeah, I know the other thing I love about Mayena is just I feel free there. There's a freedom in the Central Highlands of Tasmania that is it almost like a a breath of air comes over you when you you get there, I reckon. You can – the whole place is your oyster. It's funny (laughs) you mention that. I couldn't agree with you more. I remember – Americans talking about Montana being big sky country. Mm. And I used to laughingly think, they know what big sky country is. We have big sky country in the highlands of Tasmania. And when you analyse that, the unique part of Tasmania, a lot of its air is coming from Africa or South America or Antarctica. And it is the clearest air in the world today. When you fish the northern hemisphere in America... You don't get the clarity of sky. You don't get the clarity of air. There's always that slightly smoky, hazy... We are privileged in Tasmania to still have the best air in the world. And I think that's what makes you feel so good about being in the Highlands fishing. When you get a cobalt blue sky day, you feel feel that... Freedom, it's I don't know. Extra. Yeah, yeah, there's something extra. I yeah. couldn't agree with you more. Yeah. But I think it's something to do with the air quality than anything else. It is the best oxygen yeah. in the world. Yeah. 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 Uh, look, I mean, we've, we've touched on so many things that make uh, Tasmania a, a very special place to you and, and myself oh, as yeah, well. You know, yeah, it's, uh, it is unbelievably special. Um, yeah, you've, you've obviously had quite a history there and you've been uh, pretty keen on keeping a diary during that whole time. Um, some of the entries in there are just absolutely phenomenal, you know, the, 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 the records of catches, the people you were with. Um, Why did you get into keeping a diary in the first place? I don't know. I, 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 I just... I knew there were fishing diaries in England. There was a woman who wrote a diary with beautiful paintings and drawings in it. I can look off, it's out of my brain talking to you tonight. But I remember seeing it and thought, if I ever get to fish, I'm going to keep a diary. And, and, and I started it on day one in 1979 and I'm the most pedantic, neurotic person when it comes to fishing my diary. In fact, yeah. one mate of mine, Pooh, who didn't write the diary in, when he rings me up to go fishing the next year, I said, oh, you're not coming. He said, what do you mean I'm not coming? I said, you're out of the will. He said, what do you mean I'm out of the will? I said, you didn't write my diary out. <laughs> he said, so I'm not coming to Tasmania because I didn't write your diary. I said, yes, that's how important my diary is. But you can come next year. Well, he, he didn't Give get you a o- second chance. Oh, he didn't get over it. But let me tell you, when he came next year, he quietly wrote the diary up. Yeah, every, every, every night, yeah, just toddled off into a quiet <laughs> corner. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, but I am a bit neurotic. But 
looking back, I'm so glad I did because there's so much history in in the 50 years that those diaries record. I think they're significantly important historically of A, the fishing we had, B, the life we lived, the cars, uh, everything, you know, like even to what we drank, you know. They are social histories of a time of fishing in Tasmania that, well, I've had other people emphasise it to me more than I'm emphasising it to you now. I think they're significant. I think they, they do record fairly accurately the trout fishing over 50 years in Tasmania. It's changes. A lot of, like, a lot of entries in that diary are, are, are written by people that have, have thought about the trout fishing. There's more. Their thoughts are in there and, and, and some eulogies are in there of people that have passed on and they're important diaries. I, I'm proud of them. You I, should yeah, be, mate. Yeah. yeah and, and I, it's I, significant. You know, yeah. I, I don't think there would be another record like it. There is no other record like it. I think it was precipitated by the diary that was kept between 1896 and 1901 by Tom Early in the Great Lake. And, and, and that diary didn't keep a fly fishing diary. It was eel skins. And, but when you look at what fish were caught in the Great Lake in 1890, that's unbelievable. Mm. You know, the, the fish were huge and... Uh, and, and I think that's probably the catalyst that made me keep a diary because I was so impressed. And yeah, you read those entries and you're in awe, aren't you? Like, wow. Unbelievable. To and have been around then must have been incredible. And I've, I, I, I've been a serious fishing book collector over the years. I've always co- collect fishing books and the hardest book to get was a copy of Tom Early's diaries. I looked for 20 years before I got one and then I got one in 1980-something when Bob Dunn's collection got sold at auction remember Marty Rogers saying to me, it's simple, Jim, if you want that diary, you put your hand up and if you're the last hand up, they put it in your hand. <laughs> <laughs> and I went out to the auction, paid a record price, which I think still might be a record today for a fishing book in Australia, bought an original copy, went and got printed 42 copies, numbered 1 to 42, out of a copy, and and they didn't sell very well. I was just so enamoured with how important that diary was, but I think we ended up selling them at cost price. It wasn't all that special, but I'm proud of it today. And today, you have to pay 400 bucks for one. Mm. And for, I reckon if you had to buy an original, and I've never seen an original come up since, you'd have to pay thousands of dollars. Yeah. Yeah, who knows? Yeah, yeah so... But there's been a few people who've printed copies of it. They've, there's a few facsimiles. Um, a fellow called Ian Wilson has, has done a really beautiful copy, and he found another set of diaries that went on past 1901. Oh wow! Uh, yeah. I think he, he he takes it out to 1920 or something. Yeah. So I guess it must have been that because uh, you've always been a bit fascinated in, in history. You are you know a bit of a history buff in in yeah, how true. things were yeah. as well as how they are today and and, and the future. Um, and, yeah, that must have pre- precipitated you keeping those diaries with such passion. Um, but, yeah, we're, we're, I think we're so lucky uh, for, for Peter and I to be able to flick through the pages of these and just see uh, so clearly what it was like back in those days and to think about the life you guys were living, which is totally outrageous, by the way, like just 
<laughs> you know, to me, that's just blokes behaving badly and having the best time of their lives. Um, so, I, you know, that was obviously what precipitated it, this episode. I thought it would be great to sit down with you and talk about some of the uh, more memorable diary entries. Um, so we're going to move on to that. Well, just before you do, on the same vein, I remember an 18-year-old in my shack and his father and I had a big night of booze and music and fun. And he woke up the next morning he said, I hope I grow up to be an adult and behave as disgracefully as you old goats did last <laughs> night. And, and, he, and he put his arm around me, I really do hope I grow up like that. That's the way I want to live, you know. <laughs> but on the night, it was, oh, my God, how embarrassing, you know. Yeah, <laughs> These right. blokes were rocking and rolling to yeah. the doors or something. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just yeah. good, clean fun in but, the highlands of Tasmania. But, but, but as an aside, fly fishing is much more than just fishing. You know, I've been passionate about an insect collection. And if you come to my shack in Tasmania, I've got a, a serious what they call voucher collection of things that have been taken out of trout stomachs. Now, there's not enough time for me to go on to that, but another time, let me espouse on that because mm. that's fascinating, yeah. fascinating part of... And, and, and getting involved with serious scientists down at the University of Tasmania about insects and... And your collection of insects, much like your diary entries that are significant today, your insect collection. Biologist came up and said, do you want the good news or the bad news, Jim? And I said, well, give us the bad news. He said, you've got about $500,000 worth of fines there because you're not allowed to keep insects <laughs> like that. They're endangered. I said, what do you mean? They've been taken out of trout stomachs. He said, we've just got you a special licence. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, that's another story at another time. Yeah, yeah. Now, let's get on to some of these diary entries. This has already gone on for, uh, what are we, over an hour now, so we might have to make this a two-part episode, I think. But, um, yeah, this, uh, there's some good stuff to come, guys, so um, keep listening. Thanks for listening to part one of Fly Fishing Tasmania with Jim Allen. Stay tuned for part two.